0: This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com.
1: This week on Meetin' Three, it's our season four finale and we're
2: sharing some of our greatest kitchen joys.
0: Maybe most people consider making it too much work or too messy, but this is the food that's worth the work and worth the wait.
3: You always know where the thing is because you put it away the right way the first time.
1: You just sort of stand there and, you know, with your hand on your hip and one leg outstretched, glass of wine in your hand, staring
4: into the refrigerator going, OK, speak to me.
0: Oh, yeah. What are you doing with the celery tonight? I'm making a simple syrup for a gin cocktail with the celery. And I also found a recipe for a celery soup
2: that's
1: going to use up the celery and the potatoes and some of that dill that we still have hanging out in there. <laughs> Tune in and be inspired to find the joy in your kitchen. And don't forget to subscribe to Meet
2: in 3 wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>
4: Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here. And I can't stop laughing because we're doing a pre-record in July that will be airing in August. And I'm here with, let's go around the room and introduce. Evan Watson from Plan B Farm Brewery. I'm
3: June Russell from Grow NYC. Andrea
2: Stanley from Valley Malt. Barry LeBenz from Kent Falls Brewing. All
4: right, man. You guys, it's so great to be here. It's HeritageRadioNetwork.org. When you listen to this show in August of 2019, there's still always a membership drive going on, so check us out, HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Um, you know, last night uh, in New York, we had an event called New York City Brewer's Choice, which has been going on for quite a few years. Um, the most interesting part of it uh, goes back to 2014, when uh, we first started focusing on getting brewers to brew with local malt. And last night, uh, we did kind of a reversion of it. And a lot of the key players in that are here today, in particular, Andrea from Valley Malt and June Russell. Andrea, you can scoot over to the mic if you don't mind. Andrea and June. So why don't you guys just give us a little backstory on your involvements. First June, like the importance of grain and the food movement <laughs> um, and how you ended up going from trying to get farmers to grow more grains locally to thinking about malt and beer. Um, for New York City Brewers.
3: Sure. Yeah, we sort of got into this equation with our bakers at Green Market. We have 32 bakers that are in the program. And this goes back 15 years ago at this point, um, a discussion on how to make them more mission supportive. Our The mission of our organization is uh, to support regional agriculture and bring fresh food to New Yorkers. Uh, so the obvious thing there was flour, uh, the biggest component in baked goods, so I started uh, looking to see what was feasible. If is this something that we could expect of our of our bakers, and if so, like to what capacity, what sort of volume could there be? So uh, connecting with some folks who were doing some research on wheat varieties, uh, which goes back about ten years at this point, um, there was kind of a perfect combination of collaborators that came together and certainly the power of like, the local foods movement gave it a lot of lift off. So um, at Green Market, you know, our wheelhouse is really the markets and our relationships with um, shoppers and restaurants and food professionals that come through the marketplace. Um, we've had several convenings over the years and wanted to engage all stakeholders like realizing that grains is like a big volume game and it was going to take more than just our green market bakers, to do that kind of a heavy lift. Um, so we reached out to brewers, um, but in those early days, I joke, it's like nobody really knew uh, that they were brewing with grains or what malt was even. We went to some brewers and said, what do you need? You know, we're, we're trying to delve into this grains issue and equation and see what we can do. And they're like, yeah, we don't we don't brew with grain.
4: And then you had, the first project was with, you were trying to do a wheat beer with, with a...
3: We did. Well, then again, like over, I think around that same time when we were engaging stakeholders, uh, Andrea and Christian were starting up Valley Malt, and I think I met you back in 2011 or so. So there was like this model, right? This small operation that was actually uh, working with regional grains and doing some malts. And so then the point was to sort of get some, get that out there and show people that, hey, this could be done. and. As a matter of fact, there might even be better flavor.
4: And then you had a Brooklyn Brewery made a, a wheat beer?
3: 2013, uh, we worked with Brooklyn Brewery and they developed a recipe called a Green Market Wheat that they launched, and Andrea worked on that for Great. Well. So now,
4: Andrea, jump in. And we're just trying to bring everybody up to speed because now we're in 2019. But, Andrea, back then, 2013, 2014, a little of your backstory and how you started working with uh, June and Grow NYC
1: yeah in 2013 uh we were mostly working with organic farmers at the time um so Klaus Martin's lakeview was one of the first farmers that kind of took the risk and said sure i'll try growing malt barley um and so you know we were um you know really at those very early stages of trying to figure out how and when to grow you know do you grow a winter malt barley do you grow a spring malt barley um, you know really leaning on the farmers to say whether or not something was a successful crop for them or not and um, and then working on the quality side so not only learning how to malt without a lot of information out there but also learning how to malt with grains that were um, you know grown locally and you know maybe had pre-sprout damage and you know things like that some quality issues early on that we've come a long way to the point where You know the barley that we're working with in the last several years has just been you know world class beautiful beautiful barley so just
4: in 2014 you guys came together and we said let's put on an event for new york city beer week and we got about 20 brewers and and there were some pretty big craft brewers then omen gang was involved brooklyn brewery jeff o'neill at peak skill and everybody was making a batch of beer for the event uh with the local mall for the first time and, and it was this crazy thing but how just tell us about that how many pounds of malt did you did you provide and what were some of the the things that happened then because now we're going to go fast forward to where we are now and it seems so so much more normal just five years later
1: yeah it feels a lot more normal back then it felt it was like very anxiety provoking to think that we had to you know make some malt for some of these breweries like Gang that you know really they're you know the quality standards for you know somebody like phil is like up there you know and uh now i would say it feels a little uh less anxiety provoking because again we have you know nine years under our belt we we know how to make good malt and we know how to make it consistently and and the reason why is because we have you know a lot more farmers that are growing larger acreage of barley that is super high quality so when that all falls into place um, it really you know makes makes the processing easier
4: that's great now I'll kind of jump forward so um, when we were putting together the event from from 2019 uh, when I talked to you Evan the first thing you said was what six years ago you were doing what how far were you driving to get local malt And Well,
5: yeah, for for the entire existence of Plan B Farm Brewery, we've only used ingredients including um, uh, our yeast culture from New York State. But maybe Andrea can call me on that because oh, uh, chocolate rye was the only thing like six years ago I bought from you. But I think it was grown in New York. Or at least you told me that. I don't <laughs> was it, Andrew? Do <laughs> so you remember, remember that? Andrew is the only person in this room <laughs> that could probably call me on on that. But um, back then, I was getting all our base malt. Uh, the first few batches from Marty Matrazo's fish tank north of Binghamton, I'd drive up six hours total to get 50 pounds of malt, and that would be a batch of beer. And I've never used anything. You know, Now I'm at a, at a place where I have Ben Dobson growing six-row barley for me, and every... every Every beer we make now is not only, uh, you know, floor malted and um, organic barley, but it's it's also no-till. It's entirely carbon sequestering barley, which I think might be the only place in the country that's doing that. Stonehouse Farms, the rolling and crimping, and I mean, it's a Rockefeller no. estate. No, that's not true. No, no, no.
3: There,
5: There's. The, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Jump in. Yeah, jump in. Informing.
3: Well, that's uh, they are they are one of several. This is a method that is starting to spread.
5: The rolling and crimping. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's I expensive think, gear, though, right?
3: You sure? Right. Depends on, on If you're Amy
5: Rockefeller, you can afford it. Exactly.
3: <laughs> that's that. Gets but it's a, that's I mean that's that's
5: the beautiful thing in the, about the Hudson Valley not to to uh, go on a tangent, but I would say that you know I grew up in Indiana. I grew up with farming, millions of acres of, of corn and soybeans. And it, those farms, uh, though, they're vast, and everybody's like, oh, you grew up in, in farming country. Those farms don't feed anybody. 60% of that goes to China, comes back as high fructose corn syrup, and kills us. That, so, like, to be in the Hudson Valley, to be in the, the the Northeast, in the farming valley community is so interesting. I mean, it's a byproduct of wealth. But you see these farms that are actually feeding people. And I, I've I've definitely, from... The beginning of Marty Matrazo's fish tank to, uh, to now, when we have uh, 13 mulsters in, in the state of New York and uh, more barley than we need uh, more or less uh, in general, now we, uh, we're getting to a place where it's it's easy to use. I mean I've done it from the beginning, but it's nothing I've ever done is easy. <laughs> That's been my thing.
4: You're a wild man. But let's get Barry. So we're trying to introduce everybody into the group. So Barry, you started Kent Falls. Tell us some of the philosophies you had and how you've worked with local malt and other local ingredients. So
2: we started, uh, we moved on to our farm in about 2012 and the brewery became operational in 2015. Um, I remember, I think I called Andrea, like I remember a memory of like sitting in my office desk at my old job, calling Andrea and talking for like an hour or whatever it was. And the idea was, you know, we went through uh, a lot of zoning and state licensing um, meetings to kind of create a permit to do the brewery on a farm. There was no such law like there was in New York and Connecticut. So as part of that, it was about, hey, we can keep land in agriculture, which is a major purpose of our business is like how can not only we keep a farm a farm and where we want to make beer but work with other farms and kind of create hopefully a sustainable supply chain where we can get our malt or hopefully our hops and the fruit and (coughs) everything we're using in the beer uh, from people that we know and can work with and have input and uh, use their expertise in what we want to actually do with uh, their products. So uh, when we started it was really hard I remember trying to get find people uh, who were growing grains and Andrew was the only real maltster I think at the time uh, making malt so we were lucky to get a pallet in the northeast right yeah Yeah. we were lucky to get a pallet you know uh, almost five years ago at your scale and where we were to be able to brew consistently and we started on a 15 barrel system so you know, we took a philosophy of when we get malt, we make 100% local malt beers. It's not 5% in a beer. It's not, you know, uh, um, you know something scattered in. We wanted to be able to showcase it and really work with it and talk about it and have it be uh, something that stands out from the other beers that we we're making. And then I think it was um, sometime last year we made the decision where uh, local malt had opened up in Connecticut, uh, really filled in some of the, and Andrea increased the amount we were ordering from Andrea and just the supply was finally there to be able to go 100% and say, we don't need to do specialty things. It's like everything we do and this value is something that's so at the core that uh, making beer with other malt actually felt like um, like we were brewing someplace else. In Great.
4: Way. So now we're going to ask a couple of questions to get everybody on the same page. Um, a big part of what we're talking about with, with this is farm to glass. It's, it's agriculture. It's grain. So June and Andrea, um, you know, what are the key grains? I remember five, six years ago, you were trying to get everyone to, to use rye or emmer, but it sounds like now there's people actually getting good barley that's grown in this region. Who wants to talk about the grains and evolution of grains? Or what we need to do with grains? Yeah. For beer.
3: <laughs> well, it's, it, it's been fascinating to work on this. Oh, my God. You know, this is I would say this is the big one in the food system, right, where grains are commodities. And we had, especially in the Northeast, had lost any kind of like a legacy experience of working with grains or having the infrastructure the handling capacity or even adapted varieties. So what's happened in the last 10 years has really been phenomenal. Um, you know, we, again, like some of our collaborators were focused on some weed varieties and then some of the ancient and heirloom varieties in particular, and those were It's interesting how things have shifted then, even back 10 years ago, the recognition from the organic community of the need to have these grains in crop rotations for soil health benefits and carbon sequestration and water absorption. Um, That's something that they knew. It's something I learned from them, but also realized like, okay, if we're going to have um, a functioning system, this needs to be part of it. And so our role has been to try to add value to those grains as an incentive for farmers to grow them. And that's what's been happening um, with the initiative at Green Market and then also the state uh, farm and distillery uh, beverage legislation that really pushed things along. So, you know, we've seen certain things like we've, like Emmer was literally part of a, a grant project that we were on to work on some of those ancient heritage varieties because of their resilience, their um, plants that have not been hybridized for strictly yield performance and they have broader, stronger root systems. Um, there's real agronomic benefits to those that is really the bigger thing that we've been after, is, is some of that. But then also introducing it into the food system, you know, the great discovery is that there is flavor. You know, this was still a question 10 years ago. It was like, are there differences between varieties? And yes, we know that. I and mean, yes, we know that it shows up in beer I and mean, it shows up in spirits. Um,
5: June, can you talk about the difference between... Or, uh, can you talk about... Emma, I know that Barry can also talk about because you guys have used it. I've never used it. Can you tell a little bit of the pedigree and the history of it emmer wheat is what we're talking about yeah
3: for yeah a, a
5: variety of wheat
3: uh, historically einkorn is considered the mother grain that was the first one to be domesticated and it has very simple biological structure that i'm not going to pull those words out of my brain um and emmer was second it evolved is it sumerian
5: and historically or is it
3: fertile crescent oh, definitely yeah. and that's where I pestered Andrea like crazy to make an emmer beer because I had found some things that saying like actually the Egyptians were probably using emmer to make their beer because that's what they were growing. Um, And then spelt evolved off of that and then off of spelt are all of the wheat varieties that are related to the wheat varieties that we have now (laughs) around the world. I'm just going to interject
1: real quick, because barley actually is one of the ancient grains as well. I think it gets left out because it's not as exotic as emmer and einkorn, but when you talk about the early grains, that pre-domestication that would have been harvested just as a wild grain, barley is almost as old as emmer and
4: einkorn. Great. And I want to, Andrew, you want to say something about emmer? Uh, bear? Yeah,
2: I mean, we, we love it. We've brewed uh, uh, emmer wines where it's just like, you know, that big, sweet, rich body um, and use a high percentage of flaked and raw emmer. We've never actually brewed with malted emmer. It's always been raw or flaked. Um, I think just uh, Spencer hasn't had the success malting it uh, due to the husk, I believe. I think the next time he said he was going to try it, he was going to de-hull it and then try and malt it. Barry, um, do you
5: think all this talk of Emmer is gonna—that's gonna be the most popular name uh, for a <laughs> child in Williamsburg, Now in Williamsburg? Seems like a
4: good maybe name. in Poughkeepsie, when you keep having Emmer. babies up there, oh, maybe Jeff O'Neill one. will have a couple more babies. Oh, I, know. At I think Industrial that's biologically lives, but... impossible.
5: You know. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: At the end of the day, it's probably
1: not So wait, not Jeff can have babies?
4: Maybe,
2: but let's. How does he do that? If he
4: eats the emmer, uh, the, emmer, uh, emmer pay, it, the emmer shortbread that June made. Let's pass
2: the emmer shortbread around. They say let's eat isn't that. Isn't it emmer makes like makes you strong, one of those ancient? Oh,
3: yeah.
5: Can can I? There's uh, ancient myths. Can I kind of take, take a, a bit of a road trip here? Just conceptually, is that all right? Can I, I'm interested in this? Is that all right, Jimmy? Sure, I know it's, man. I'm, I don't mean to to no, cut your me. show, <laughs> but uh, I like I've been really fascinated because I use six row barley and I grow these heirloom corn varieties that I've I've cross pollinated. I planted four acres this year um, as an adjunct, and I'm I am obsessed with the. The moment Barry and I talked about this yesterday quite a bit, but the moment in craft beer that created craft beer that was so predicated on Oh, I don't like these adjunct lagers, these watered down American beers. What in and but I did have a Sam Smith's oatmeal stout or a Trappist beer, and then all of craft beer the entire premise of craft beer became importing things, right? Importing grains, the yeast from Belgium, from the abbeys cultivated for thousands of years by the monks, or the noble hops of Bavaria, or the um. You know the um, what the floor malted barley, the Maris Otter or whatever, right? That became the gold standard of craft beer. It's what created craft beer. It's what got us to milkshake IPAs and all these things. It's the history of that. And I've been saying, what if we took? What if that that there were two roads? Why didn't we make? A, and this sounds terrible, like a Trump endorsement. But <laughs> why didn't we make American beer better, right? Like, why did we decide to import, and it created this entire industry, as opposed to like Miller Coors and Budweiser, who were using six-row barley and corn, and the and the Brewers Association, wrongfully, in my opinion, said this is bad and these are bad ingredients because they grow here, and corn being the oldest but, thing we use in beer that is, n- is that, native. to Andrea.
1: I was just going to say. Part of it is probably people's palates wanting something different, but part of it is the supply chain. So there would not have been a way for a craft brewer necessarily to access some of the ingredients.
5: Because they, the farms were proprietary. I mean, they were American ingredients. Right? Like Budweiser and Miller Coors own the most amount of barley and malt the most amount of American barley. I mean they're the largest farm brewers. But if in they're sense.
2: if they're producing Country. if they're producing the malt for Miller Coors, you're not gonna be able to say, Hey, could I get this custom malt? I said sure, order a million pounds. Yeah, and right then right. they're like, Oh okay, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna go order a from a supplier or something from a sure. German yeah. Scale is important. Let us let's go back
4: a little bit. I wanna Sorry. get we got Andrew <laughs> here to so uh, no no this is good. You guys keep thinking interesting. Um, it's your show, you can talk about whatever yeah, you want. But you. I'd like to talk more about this e- evolution. So as a monster, you're kind of the, the point person between the farmer and and the brewer. And um, so what are some of the struggles that you face? And, and again, how, how has the, the local and regional grain you know, growing changed for you? I want you to get a little dive into it more.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is allowing, <clears throat> stepping back and trying to bring the farmer and the brewer together, which we try to do more and more. So, you know, trying to get Barry to come to Corey and Terry Mosher's farm in New York to see the barley right before it gets harvested to see what it looks like and see you know talk to the farmer and and see some of the you know listen to some of the challenges or some of the opportunities Um, I think that I've learned over time that yeah I don't want to be the gatekeeper between the brewer and the farmer I want to be the you know the person that kind of brings them together so um, and and beyond that I think even the breeder right so we're in a you know, our agriculture is starts with seed, right? And so the people that are developing the varieties want to know what the brewer wants. They know that they need to develop seed and varieties that are going to be successful for farmers. But we're all starting to think about now, when, because June mentioned flavor is, uh, we've, we've now realized that, you know, flavored varieties do carry their own different, flavors. And so I think, you know, having even the brewers and the breeders talking to each other.
2: Barry? That's, but the, there was a moment that like, I would say, um, I can point to as a shift from an ideological, like, hey, this is right. This is a world I want to live in. And this is the way we should do it to a practical, like, this is going to make better beer. And I brought up, I think three batches of beer and I called you like, hey, we're getting this flavor in a beer and we're getting this flavor in another batch brewed with other, another batch we got from you. And I brought up three growlers and a bo- two growlers in a bottle and we traced back where each batch came from, what farm, what was the malting temperature, what batch of malt was it, and identified certain uh, flavor characteristics, um, some ideal, some not ideal, that uh, we said, I said, well, can we not get that anymore? and you said yeah and then it was shortly thereafter you came down and we did a pilsner and pale malt varietal um taste test between commercially available malt and some of your malt uh your barley that you get from different farms and it was blind and the whole brewery staff did it and everybody wrote down their notes and i think it was unanimous we all said hey this one variety is incredible and we want to brew with this. And I started saying to Andrea, like, that's all I want. And it's complicated to to you know say, hey, I, you know, you're you're the customer who's only ordering the most popular beer. It's the same kind of thing. But at the same time, the flavor was uh, it was such a standout that okay, well, to do this, maybe and we've talked about this, we need to get that seed grown in more places, and how do I get more of that? And two something years later, I signed a malt contract with Andrea for that specific variety. Was it diet Pepsi? <laughs> no, what, what was the name? It, endeavor. It's
1: Endeavor, oh, yeah. Wow. And the interesting thing is we did that hot, so that was after the hot steep method had de- yep. been developed, because up until craft malt became a thing, there really wasn't a method to evaluate malt flavor. People would chew malt, but that wasn't a really good way to really see the nuance or taste the nuance and so we had the hot steep got developed in like June of 2016 we did that te- taste test um, in August we all it, and you weren't the only brewery we did it with other breweries and everybody was like endeavor tastes the best
5: it's called endeavor <laughs> and so
1: the interesting thing was it was August and you plant winter endeavors a winter barley you plant it in early September. We could not find seed for Endeavor anywhere um, because the year before had been a bad winter and the Endeavor didn't survive. And so there was no seed for that year. So we had to, that was August, 2016. We had to put in an order then for August of 2017 to get the seed, to then have farmers plant it in 2017, to then harvest in 2018 and not start malting until 2019, which was when we... So I mean, to think about what it takes to—it's you're not taking a catalog and pointing to Endeavor and saying, "I want this." You know, it take—it took us two years to get Barry what
4: his and palate told him. pours them. that beer, which are some of the farmers that worked with you on growing Endeavor? Like, tell us that process. So you the, got them the seed. Yeah. Who are these farmers?
1: So Terry and Corey Mosier, Mosier Farm, they're a diversified fruit and vegetable farm in the Hudson region, and um, New York in New York. Yep, yeah. and um, they also grow some other commodity crops like corn and wheat. Maybe some soy, but I'm not sure. Um, they also grow hops, and um, they had been growing Wint malt, which was a winter variety, and. That was one of the varieties that we really, after doing some taste testing, realized was not something that was uh, what we were felt like had the best flavor and aromas. So um, they were more than willing to, you know, because we we have to have a contract with them. So we're contracting to buy it all. So, so, so
4: you have Kemp Falls contracts with you yep. and you contract with yep. the farmer.
1: And that's kind of the conversation. You know, I would say to Barry, listen, I'm happy to do this, but we all have to. Engage with each other and commit to each other. And so he put the ring on it, and, you know, we got we got the Endeavor growing. And, you know, it's been—I it, just got a text from the Mosiers yesterday. They were harvesting, and they were, you know, boy, we love this Endeavor. And then a video of them harvesting a beautiful field.
2: So, Barry, what's this? You got so excited to just open a can of beer. So uh, this is the hollow. It's kind of our house pilsner. Um, we brew all our lagers with the Endeavor. Cheers. Excelsior. <laughs> that's uh, the motto of New York State. Yeah, and I think there's no, no better way to kind of showcase what a malt actually tastes like, you know, than just Pilcher malt in a beer. It's uh, great. I mean, it's come
4: so far, June.
3: Oh, yeah, but it's, it, it's really, um, there's a really interesting reciprocity that's happening, and, and the same very similar development in uh, wheat varieties in the baking world. And, you know, um, like getting the, the brewer and the breeders together, it's, there's really an exchange there. I think there's been movement on both sides because when we've worked on wheat varieties and breeders are so cali, all of us have been really calibrated to commodity, right? Like, um, the flowers that become similar to the base malt that everybody's been using for years and years and kind of the first time that we're veering off from that and in some ways just having to step back and be remedial and learn about our base ingredients um, we were really surprised to learn that none of that was being taught in baking schools and in any of the cooking schools and Uh, bakers had no idea that there was a winter wheat or a spring wheat or variable protein contents and gluten structures and all these things that have now become kind of baseline in understanding how to work with different varieties and local varieties that um, are not homogenized, basically, once they go through a mill or a malting facility so that they'll perform exactly the same way every time. So I think that we've seen a lot of movement. I mean, the emmer is a really good example, right? This is not something that Americans are used to but there is a long culinary history in the world so being able to continue to stir that pot and you know get people to taste first of all is yeah. is a game changer and then um, just seeing how they perform it may not turn it's, it's it's a high protein grain it's not so great for beer in the long run but it's important that we're experimenting and increasing our knowledge and then that knowledge builds now and hopefully we'll have a legacy that will go on It's
4: great so we got to taste uh kent falls your the pilsner what's the name again it was, the, ho- <clears throat> the hollow the hollow is made with the endeavor endeavor barley endeavor barley and last night we saw at new york city brewer's choice there were quite a few brewers who had made beer with um malt from local to them like Maine. uh Allagash sent down a, a beer that had Maine malt foam brewers from vermont came down with something from peterson peterson malt what did you make evan i'm giving it away this is august now so definitely i think that <laughs> the kent falls and the, the plan b were two of the we had a judging two of well, the judges favorites well we've
5: you know we've done over 200 varieties of beer with all new york malt it was just i mean all of our beers are you know like i stated earlier incessantly. that <laughs> <laughs> they all are
4: what poor. you were pointing to it was uh, like yeah, a wild yeah. day it, was it was emily's it like, was like these... dry
5: Emily's like these are the ones that are we don't we ran out of labels these are the unlabeled bottles <laughs> and they were uh, so that's you can samples, pour, right <laughs> you could go pour these and they were it was our Rose Hill beer it's a um, we work with this farm it's a biodynamic uh, orchard that does low no spray like pretty minimal hand, hands on in terms of fruit right up actually right near uh, Ben Dobson's farm and and Red Hook um, near Dan Suarez's brewery it's right down the road. Um, and they uh, we this we're in the second year of doing this beer where i just take fruit in small quantities instead of like overly fruity beers i take fruit as it comes in and um and there was uh, three or four varieties of peaches and three or four varieties of plums as it comes in and it was a beer that was held in a a large oak fooder for about 6 months like half a year yeah it was called yeah rose hill and like very lightly funky and lightly tart and lightly a little bit of everything—the biscuits and the beans. And yeah. what was the—is there a, a, a base malt in there? Or? Yeah, the six-row barley. I mean, that's all I use. That's my all my all my base malt is six-row. Um, Plan B Pilsner is what Dennis nestle over it. Uh, so
4: Hudson, Hudson Valley malt—that's malt. where you Valley get your malt. malt.
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, and it was funny at the beginning of this year. I mean, I've been through all these ebbs and flows of maltsters Ted and Patricia, Holly, Andrea, and Marty Matrazo, all these. These are heroes to me. Andrea's a hero of mine.
3: Absolutely. Me too. Yeah. Cheers to Andrea. Yeah.
5: Definitely. <laughs> Thanks, Thank
3: guys. Thank God for Andrea. Yeah. Um
5: But the, uh, uh, it's funny because uh, I've fallen into this, the six-row barley, which had the best numbers, the lowest protein in all of New York State last year. No spraying, no till, um, grown organically. And like I was saying earlier, the Brewer's Association kind of Demonized six row barley because it had to do with the big the big breweries right but it grows really easily and and it's hard you know that's been a challenge for maltsters to get brewers interested in it but that's a byproduct of the whole importing thing in my opinion but um what I was going to say is at the beginning of this year, Ben Dobson and Dennis Nestle were like, We've got so much barley. Like, joked around about how, well, you better use all this because he had such a successful yield. But by the end, right now, I'm out of barley because Jeff O'Neill at, um, industrial arts yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's been using it for like his spring and summer landscape series and brewing a lot of beer with it um suarez is using it um mike Ringaneshi over at hudson valley is using it so it the the cat uh hutch even though he doesn't do
4: a lot of batches over at the cia uh, the cat's out of the bag when it comes to six row and well you know yeah. you're an innovator people copy no, you i you know? didn't mean that but hey we're gonna take one short break we'll be back in a minute on beer sessions radio all right
0: This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that provides offices, co-working, event spaces, and a brand new podcast recording room. Have you been dreaming of starting your very own podcast in Brooklyn? You can now rent space in 100 Bogart's custom-built podcast room to record interviews, voiceover, and commentary. The room is fitted out with two microphones, mixing board, and a MacBook Pro running Pro tools. You can rent the space by the hour, and a rental of an hour or more includes a 100 Bogart co-working pass. That means complimentary coffee, tea, and access to your own desk for the rest of the day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on your next audio project. 100 Bogart has the space and amenities you need to kickstart your podcast. Learn more at 100bogart.com or call their team at 718-362-3539.
4: Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, guys, this is a special show we recorded in July uh, after New York City Brewer's Choice with uh, grains expert, maltster, and two brewers, and, and we're talking. Andrea, go, you got a crazy question here. Six-row barley, what?
1: No, I mean, we've malted... Awesome. We, you know, six-row barley. It really quality is a moving target, right? So six-row, two-row. It really depends on the protein content and a lot of other factors. Sure. But just the comment about the Brewers Association demonizing six-row. I didn't. Yeah. The, I've never really.
5: Yeah. In the nineties, they kind that of that, that was a differentiated. Thing. They said that corn and six-row barley, because they it was in their interest to differentiate from mm. macro beer. Mm-hmm. The micro beer. Mm -hmm. Am I not supposed to talk about this No,
2: no, no. Look at the the, the differentiation or moving targets, right? So points of differentiation. They're doing this. We have to do something else. Right? right? So, But as they're growing, they're having to be more inclusive of the people who help build them doing other things. The
5: taste in the mouth of the brewer is that of... Um, no six-row barley. No, corn. I don't know if
2: it's a tasting. I think it's a business decision. I w- it is a business decision, yeah. but it affects affects all of us deeply. I think. I I, I agree with you, but I don't like, think I don't think the decision was. I want to use high
5: fructose corn syrup. <sighs> the decision.
2: I don't think the no, decision no, no, was made for for flavor. I think the decision was made for uh, marketing and differenti- marketing. differentiation purposes. I, I think
4: one thing I haven't just. Um, I think you're jump. You're way ahead of us in terms of where your thoughts are. So maybe you just take one step (laughs) back. No, because I mean, there's two-row and six-row barley. Let's let's go back to the basic grains. You know, how do we get the six-row barley? Or
1: yeah, something that really blew my mind in doing a little research on grain history is two-row is actually an older, Mm -hmm. genetically older than six-row. Six-row was a mutant that came out of. Two row. So like most wild barley, all wild barley is
5: sure. two row. It's like grass.
1: And um, two so six row is kind of a younger version of barley. And it was
5: designed out of enzymatic power, I assume, for trying just like Correct. a distiller would use it to get the most out of these big uh, macro right. lager houses to sure. get the most enzymatic power out However, of the amount of. However,
1: breeding technology has basically brought two row, like Metcalf, because I think Dennis is... Or um, you know, uh, your your source of yeah. barley is Quest. Is that right? Yes. So, if you compare Quest to Endeavor enzymatically, Endeavor yeah. might even have more enzymes at this point than. So it used to be that six row right. it was the enzymes, but over time breeders have listened to their market, which is both craft brewers and, larger, and larger adjunct right. brewers. And they've been able to develop two row varieties now that are just as enzymatically, you know, they perform very similarly. And so now six row variety development is, there's like no funding for six row variety development. So that's why it's interesting. We're left with robust quest and tradition as the six row varieties that are still out there. But those Mm. varieties are like 30 years old, 20, 30 years old. Andrew,
4: let's go back thousands of Sumerian times. Thousands of years ago. So you said that barley is also an ancient grain. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little more. You're you're an ancient grain person. We've we've talked about this. Tell us yours. What are the ancient grains that are used for beer?
1: Well, and I don't. What I, do you guys? Yeah, what's I mean, being
4: grown now that that you guys get?
1: Well, I guess I I will go back to just you know when I envision those early times, you had the like Caucus region, and you sort of have um, if you look at where a lot of um, domesticated crops were domesticated. It was in the margins of mountains and valleys. And um, that sort of Fertile Crescent Caucus region is where wild barley grew. And there was a mutation. So it used to be that in order for wild barley to perpetuate itself, it would, that the seed would shatter from the head every time it ripened and it would fall to the soil and it would get replanted and reseeded. And there was a mutation that happened thousands and thousands of years ago where it didn't shatter. And so then people were able to gather that. And then over time, agriculture sort of happened. And so then people started to domesticate that wild barley where they started planting it. And then there were certain regions kind of spreading out from the Fertile Crescent where groups of people had landrace varieties of barley and ancient grains that they would tend to, and we're, and we're talking women that would do this work. And so then you have all different regions sort of spreading out from the Fertile Crescent where you had growing areas and growing regions where people, mostly, again, women, would be stewarding the development of these land races that came from certain regions.
4: But so the, the grain we're talking about, barley that's and others that are used for beer, so it really started out as grass. So grain is grass. Yeah. yeah. It's a wild grass. Who, who wants to, I want to just s- s- jump to that side because everyone talks about grain, carbs as being not good for you. And I really feel like that one thing we learned this week is that grains, whole grains are an important part of a good good food movement. So if, learned, if it's grass, that. it's a vegetable. Yeah.
3: yeah th- not exactly. I mean, it is, it's, it's a, they're cereal grains and that's like a specific food category and that is what enabled civilization to be established is the ability to harvest and store foods. Um, but yeah, the whole, the whole um, the issue around carbs and gluten in particular, um, there are so many factors at this time uh, impacting us, impacting our immune systems, if you want to look at like um, we, our Standard American diet is is pretty terrible. Um, You add on to that, you know, all the uh, EMFs that we're getting from a computerized world and cell phones and cell towers, and there are so many things that literally are assaulting our systems. Uh, You know, throw in there the herbicides that are now really predominant in order to produce a lot of the commodity crops, and we just don't know how those are affecting us. We do know that there is an epidemic of chronic illness in this country um, that is not happening elsewhere. People are not having these problems in Europe and they have uh, different regulations around agriculture that are not applied here. So I, I, I wouldn't, you know, it's, I wouldn't simplify that. My opinion is, is, is it's much more complicated and it's a generalized assault based on the environment that we've created and the food system that we've created.
4: Evan, I know you've been thinking a lot about the, the ancient times with grains. What do you think came first? And Jeff, Jeff Alworth wrote a pretty great article about it that I like. What came first, beer or bread? You're throwing me this question. Yeah, off. man. J-
5: June's the genius over here. Just, You're the Sumerian expert. I'm not. I'm, I'm far from it. I'm just a Viking. Um, I. Which came first? What so were
3: you drinking? Beer or, beer or bread? <laughs> <our> well, <laughs> or I'll, I'll,
5: I'll tell you. Well, I mean, things things uh, they uh, stay liquid. I mean, fermentation uh, of of alcohol content seems like a pretty good motivational factor of consuming something. Right? I mean, that seems like... I mean, maybe you're just talking to an old drunk over here. <laughs> but to me, I, I put the chicken before the egg. I think, yeah, certainly uh, people were, were um, fermenting things. I mean, long before grain was even... These uh, commodifications, these um, wonderful women uh, curating and, and planting seed and being kind of lazy. Because farming's all lazy. It's like, hey, I like that animal. I like this thing. Let me put it right next to my house so I don't have to get off the couch. <laughs> but uh, instead of foraging. But the... Um, I think, the I think that we've always, you know, been had a propensity towards uh, mind-altering things that that predates our love of bread, of brioche, you know, like water just diluting honey and becoming mead, and a bear ate it a million years ago before humans existed. I mean, it's an inebriation. That's Barry, what looking
4: for a minute.
2: beer or bread? I mean, I think it, I, I would assume beer because bread would take. Beer can happen, or fermentation and alcohol production can happen somewhat accidentally. Water and honey mixing and fermenting, and then, hey, look at this. Uh, Bread, you have to um, make a dough and then apply heat and let it rise. And There's a lot more steps to it, which I think actually also goes into, uh, not to change from a historical question (laughs) that none of us are around for. You're talking about Fort Loka. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, when you talk about, like, the, you know, making like big air quotes, like terroir of beer. It's like there's so many human manipulations of each individual uh, agricultural input before it becomes beer that, uh, you know, it takes a certain level of like intention that I would, I mean, yeah, that's where I would go without proven history. Andrea?
1: Well, I think bread. Oh, I've wanted as to ask this question on the show it. for
4: like a year. Or so that's a great <laughs> as we
1: think of bread today, I think. And we think of our lifestyles today where we have to put ourselves in the place of somebody 13,000 years ago and they were just wanting to survive and not necessarily get lit. So I think that, you know, part of it was bread of the day would have been these papir cakes that people made out of, you know, wet. they would have macerated with a mortar and pestle, which would have probably just been a rock and a rock. They would have macerated the grain, and they were just looking for ways to take what they harvested and gathered and make it last so that people weren't starving. So it would have been, you know, that that bread would have been a little patty of dried grain mush that then could have been added to water, that then could have been fermented and made into beer. So I'm going to go with both kind of at the same time.
4: June?
3: Yeah, I... I don't know the answer to that question, but now of course I'm really curious. But I, I agree with Andrea that um, it would have been a gruel first, like, like yeah, just trying to crack the grain and get some water on it. And
5: but wouldn't the porridge. water precipitate fermentation? You're
3: inevitably going to have fermentation. Like then. if it's on
5: a salt, if heat is not applied, then you're talking about something that's alcoholic, theoretically.
3: It, it would be, and I mean, there's the it's that book, the history in six classes or something. It's like. Um, there was no sanitation system, so drinking fermented beverages is how people didn't get sick from... Um, the water, the well, isn't the Egyptian
5: hieroglyph isn't there that bread thing? It's mana. Doesn't that mean beer and bread and life? Right. It's <laughs> oh, all. Yeah. It's and all. On that all note, cream. go
4: to Burvana the blog and read Jeff Auer's post from a year ago. What came first, beer or bread? Now malt. Okay, ancient malt. We know about 200 years ago there was a lot of new technology, things like thermometers and steam power, that changed the way we heated things and cooked and measured things. But before 200 years ago. What was ancient or historical malt like? Were there certain qualities like smokiness or sourness? Were they, what was the malt like back then?
1: Yeah, so I would say that one of the things I love the most about being a maltster is that the process that I do to make malt is the same process that's been in play for 10,000 years. Um, there's nothing that I add at Valley Malt to our malt that's any different than what was added um, other than refrigeration, so being able to cool the air that goes through the malt to keep it at a certain temperature, and not have to wait for the colder months of the year to make malt is probably one of the bigger innovations. Well, why do you
4: need to do it in the? Why would you need to do it in the colder months?
1: Because when you sprout grain in the warmer months, it gets really hot, and doesn't make the best malt. So, um, but you know, fuel source is the other one. So. Um, malt would have been dried down in the sun um, that's certainly like the, the Luvian type malts would have been just you know you take the sprouted you know you wet the sprouted grain you let it sprout you dry it down in the sun um, but then also fuel sources anything from peat to dung to ferns to straw wood um, and then eventually anthracite coal and that became the cleaner version of the malt that we see today. And now we have malts that, through food safety laws, you know, have to be made with indirect So the, fire. Dung, the dung's
4: gone. We're not going to burn it At least here dung.
1: in the U.S. It's
4: all clean I'm, coal. I'm sure
1: that there are parts of the world where people are drying their malt with dung. Yep.
4: Great. And then you guys, as, as <laughs> brewers, uh, do, do you know, like, you you're learning about... Steeping some malt. There's there's steps you're learning. You guys tell me how you do it. How, how do you figure out what the beer is going to taste like? How do you, you know, gauge a malt? You know, in in the evolution. You
2: know. I mean, I think it's malt. conversation, right? It's it's trial and then going back, being like what I said before, being able to go back to the source and say, hey, I got this. Hey, we experienced this, and get feedback about that uh there was one you know whether something was intentional that we noticed in the malt or it was happenstance like oh that batch ended up that way uh so i really think it's that direct um relationship that you have with a supplier of any kind malt or otherwise that you can really learn to understand your product because you're not emailing somebody who's a representative of a larger company who sells grain from a larger company elsewhere in another country and they go like i have a data sheet and this is what it is like they know the growers they can answer any question from the entire life cycle of the product and that might give you the data that you need to make the decisions for the flavor and and intention that you have with the beer
5: yeah i i get grain from two farms one of which is mine and the other is just—I mean—it's the harvest from one particular farm. So the real any kind of nuance or, or difference is, is in the hand of the maltster. And I work with Dennis Nessel at, at Hudson Valley Malt Germantown Beer Farm. Um, and I go up there, and we talk. I mean, it's hard to get out of Dennis's barn in under two hours so he likes to talk he's a wonderful man i know he's listening to this <laughs> but uh, but you know we talk and we we're self-perpetuating like we we can talk for a long time and we, you know we try to figure out stuff and i mean i'll tell you that I, that the malt that i use i used this week was is a hundred times better than the first bags of malt he he brought me so I, it's it's a growing thing but for me it's a little bit different it's a single single farm it's a single harvest that i use for the whole year here.
4: Quick, I wanna talk about the beer that you made last night, Barry. So um, you made a two point eight percent beer that I really liked and I was drinking. I
2: sound you make surprised. A, how do you make a beer? <laughs> well, I don't
4: I'm you know, I, I haven't really had a two point eight percent beer in a long time, but it was really good. How did you make that beer and you know, especially in terms of malt?
2: So that beer uh, actually had malt from both uh, Thrall Family Malt in Andrea so it's uh, base was Valley Pilsner the Endeavor Barley which in a lot of our certainly lower ABVs a- uh, ABV beers, Farmhouse Ales Pale Ales and Lagers we'll use uh, and it was it had a little bit of uh, Spencer's Raw Emmer in there uh, for body because it's such a small who, beer who Spencer? Spencer Thrall from Thrall Family Malt in Connecticut uh, so we wanted something to kind of make it Act a little bit bigger than it actually is. And uh, we just brewed a really light saison, uh wort and put it on top of hops that we had made with a pale ale. So Nelson Sauvin, really powerful, kind of uh, intense flavor. Um, that's, left a ho-
5: that's a local hop, right? Yeah,
2: right. it's uh, <laughs> grown locally in New but, Zealand. But how do you get 2.8%? <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. Oh, se- I mean, real, just low gravity wort, like, just don't use as much grain. Uh, so we yeah, so we left the hops in there and uh, let it ferment on top of the hops. So it's got uh, you know for a small beer, the leftover flavor from uh, pretty impactful hops and um, some mal- malts that give it, <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, a little bit more body than what you would think in a two point eight percent beer if it was just barley. The
4: reason I ask people to, you know, talking about health or whatever you're drinking, talking about lower alcohol beers, for some reason I thought you could only make a certain. So you know, people have used to having twelve percent table wines and you know, six or eight percent stronger beers. I, I haven't had too many two point eight percent beers. Um
2: Low ABV beers are great. I mean, you can drink more of them. it's Like the most accounts, yeah. Most simply yeah. put, right? Like you can have a conversation. It was, it was revelation. And not, it's a whole and new. Not and, you it's know, not,
5: I mean, that's what all of of. Ale was predicated upon. Public house and real ale is all... Bitters are 3% alcohol. Yeah, I mean, it, you could sit there all day so from noon, to, min- day, yeah. noon <laughs> to midnight. The, 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 no, I started with the Bloody Mary. I'm in trouble. <laughs> but I think that it goes... June, last night I gave you the 2.8% <laughs> beer. Yeah, you did. You it's yeah. delicious. <laughs> it's so good. it's the hollow. I have to
2: say that. this beer is delicious too, baby. Thank you. Um, great. Going, you know, I think it goes back to some of that like uh, historic drinking culture that Evan was talking about before. You know, in... If you go to Europe, beer is so ingrained into like the history. It's been around in such a part. Like Stott, Pilsner was created in Pilsen and was like it an, uh, and was such a part of the fabric of. Um, their culture that you go out there and you have a pilsner at lunch and it's a low abv beer and everybody is cool with it and you go here if you have a beer at lunch you know on a not in the beer industry uh (laughs) people kind of like sometimes are shocked and this was one of the things i studied abroad uh in prague and started kind of drinking beer there my my brother lived there for a decade so i would visit often and uh when i came back and started working and i like first time i was like i'm gonna have a beer at lunch and everybody at the office was like what are you doing? And then the next morning, everybody came in and bragged about how much they drank the night before, and you go like, "This is a this is a culture thing that you're kind of." And
5: just because like, Barry takes his shirt off at two PM yeah. and stands on no, top of the conference stand, but I, but I, but I think
2: there's something to where like beer is not seen like we went through. We talked about this yesterday. We went through prohibition. Beer seen as like there was a period where it was taboo. Um, yeah. That is. Last
4: question. We're gonna have to wrap this up. June. Um, you're so involved with grains uh, you are my hero and um coming up is rye week That's so Rachel, we you've talked for a long time about using ancient grains like emmer and einkorn but we found that our new york and northeastern brewers are really happy to get really good barley um what about rye w- you know we know, tell oh, us about yeah. rye distilling and, and brewing and rye week coming up
3: yeah rye really um it kind of came on quickly and became this it grain in a way like there was a baker simo who had like nordic uh, breads yeah. Nordic breads. who like we introduced him to tor and tor went and tor found Asher, danko yeah. um and i just had the great pleasure of being out in wisconsin and seeing danko a big field growing out there that they had sourced of seed from tor and just you know how this has had a life of its own but there's there's definitely a combination of like the influence of You know, SEMO single-handedly kind of built that market uh, from our perspective, a green market where you wouldn't think that people would go crazy for this bread, but they did. It was this um, kind of dense, round donut shape with a big circle in it, and he sold out every single market, and people got really hooked on this bread. And then, um, you know, Rise... uh, uh, One of the grains that uh, the colonists brought, and it did really well in the Northeast, it's a really scrappy grain. It's suitable for the Northeast because of really scrappy weather. Um, So the fact that it's been embraced and the culinary level is, is, Uh, will go a long way to impact on the ground definitely and And we
4: know we'll be doing shows this fall about the the rye week because it's really about the empire rye whiskey project
3: yeah there'll be more shows than
4: that last thing for andrea because you know your your local malt business has has really you're supplying so many local breweries tell us some of the the breweries you're working with in your region in massachusetts because those are all the beers i want to try uh
1: okay Let's see. Danko Rye goes to? Danko Rye goes to, mostly to Mad River Distilling. And um, some of it goes to Exhibit A Brewing, um, Wormtown, uh, Trillium, um, Remnant, Cambridge Brewing Company. Uh, You know, everybody, like Rye is, you know, one of those grains that it, it is a specialty. And I think that when brewers think about how to use local malt... And maybe thinking about using local malt as more of a specialty grain, the rye, the spelt, the oats, the naked oats, the wheat, those do, you know, we, 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 we malt quite a bit of those because they're not just base malt where you kind of have to have, uh, you know, a certain price point. So, yeah, so the Danko rye has become, you know, we have brewers that are like, we want the rye with that has flavor and that is Danko. So. Wow.
4: This has been an awesome show.
5: Evan, final words? Well, Rick Danko was the most flavorful member of the band.
4: <laughs> 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 Thank you, Barry. You said it all. I, I, we, we, we tasted <laughs> it, man. Your hollows made with just, just Endeavor. Endeavor. Barley malt mm-hmm. from Andrea Stanley. Yep. speaks malt. for itself. You guys are great. Everybody, thanks so much thanks for joining Jimmy. me here. We got Evan from Plan B. Everyone, say their name. Let's go around the room one more time. Uh, Evan from Plan B.
5: <laughs>
3: <laughs> June from Grow NYC.
1: Andrea Valley Malt.
2: Barry from Kent Falls.
4: I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. Big shout out to our producer Justin Kennedy. Engineer today is Jeet. Uh, assistant producer Leah Papes. And uh, we'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo. Yeah.